Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anna Howard Shaw was warned that the liquor supporters in town threatened to burn the roof over her head if she dared speak on behalf of temperance that night. Yet Shaw was used to similar threats, and she took the stage as she did most every night. Ten minutes into her speech, Shaw noticed a man drop through a trap door in the ceiling of the hall onto the balcony and then climb down to the main floor. Once his feet touched the ground, he yelled, Fire! and instantly panic struck the room and people began to rush towards the doors. Believing that there was in fact no fire, that this was just an empty threat as many others had been before, Shaw recognized that people could get killed in this rush to escape. And so she leapt onto a chair in the audience and she shouted, there is no fire, it's only a trick, sit down, sit down. This slowed the stampede as people stopped and looked around, seeing if there actually was a fire in the hall. However, a man from the organizing committee rushed up to Shaw and hissed in a terrified whisper, There is a fire, Miss Shaw. For God's sake, get the people out, quickly. Quick on her toes, although her knees were trembling, she bellowed to the crowd, As we are already standing and are all nervous, a little exercise will do us good. So march out, singing, keep time to the music. 
Later, you can come back and take your seats. The committee leader leaped into the aisle and began singing, Jesus, lover of my soul, as he and Shaw led the spooked lecture-goers out of the hall. By the time the last person was out of the building, the flames were breaking through the wooden walls and dancing in the night air. After her initial rage that the liquor supporters would risk hundreds of their fellow townspeople's lives, Shaw led the mass to a nearby church where they continued their meeting. The episode turned the tide in the town, which overwhelmingly voted for prohibition at their next election. This is just one of many harrowing episodes in the life of reformer, activist, suffragist, and powerhouse Anna Howard Shaw. It shows how dangerous supporting reform movements like temperance and women's suffrage could be in the latter half of the 19th century. Yet it also highlights Shaw's indomitable spirit in a life that was lived devoted to reform. However, Shaw is most famous, or infamous as some would have it, as the fourth president of the National American Women Suffrage Association and for the unceasing work she did on behalf of women's suffrage. Today we'll look at that history and how the historiography has been, to put it bluntly, unkind to Shaw. Let's dig in. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters and especially our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons, Lauren, Hannah, Iris, Colin, Susan, Edward, Agnes, Denise, Jessica, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that each of our episodes relies on the research and writing of historians and other scholars. Today's episode is largely based on Trisha Franzen's absolutely amazing reassessment of Shaw's life and her book, Anna Howard Shaw, The Work of Women's Suffrage. Franzen's book came out in 2014, and it's actually been sitting on my shelf for a little while, but it wasn't until this year that I finally got around to reading it. And let me tell you, since reading it, I have told everyone I know that they should read it too. It is such a great look uh, at the American suffrage movement during Shaw's presidency, which Franzen shows were actually some of the most important years of the movement. We refer to other sources in this episode as well, such as Shaw's autobiography, The Story of a Pioneer. And you can find our full bibliography plus footnotes and links for every episode in our show notes on our website, digpodcast.org. And don't forget, if you're interested in something that you hear about today, please make sure to check out all of these excellent books and articles. Anna Howard Shaw played a critical and effective role in winning women the right to vote. Just as important, she modeled what it looked like to break through the confines of traditional gender roles. Shaw is estimated to have delivered over 15,000 speeches in her career, yet she's often overlooked for brighter, shining stars in the suffrage movement. 
Anna Howard Shaw was born in northern England in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in 1847. At the age of four, her father decided to move the family to the United States, and in 1851, the family settled in Lawrence, Massachusetts. In 1857, Shaw's father purchased cheap land in the Michigan wilderness. Her father went first, taking two of his sons on the thousand-mile journey to their new homestead. Later, Shaw, her mother, and three siblings followed their father and brothers and made the arduous journey to Michigan. When Shaw's mother arrived in Michigan, she was devastated by what she found. Their homestead of 60 acres had only a small clearing where her husband and two sons had built a shell of a log cabin. There were holes where the windows and door should be. Her husband had dug no well, had begun no crops to sustain them for the winter, and no land was cleared for spring planting. Shaw's mother walked into the dirt floor cabin and curled into a ball, her head in her hands, unmoving and totally unresponsive. She spent hours in this position, overwhelmed by her husband's ineptitude and the situation in general. And this horrible experience stayed with Shaw for the rest of her life. It threw Shaw into an unwelcome adulthood as she learned quickly that she could not rely on a patriarch to protect her. Throughout her childhood, Shaw faced the unique stresses of a difficult home life as her mother experienced debilitating illnesses and her father lacked any aptitude for farming whatsoever. Shaw was forced to take on homemaking and breadwinning roles beyond the realm of most young women of her day. She later wrote about this period in her autobiography, quote, It remained for us to strengthen our bodies, to meet the conditions in which he had placed us, and to survive if we could. Shaw did lots of non-traditional work at a young age, learning to use tools, chop and carry wood, and farm. She also qualified to be a school teacher at the age of 16, which earned her a small amount of money. When the Civil War began, her brothers and father enlisted in the Union Army and her two older sisters got married and left home. Shaw had no choice but to shoulder the burdens of running the homestead while taking care of her delicate mother. She continued to teach and her mother took in sewing while Shaw and her younger brother continued to farm. Yet the family barely got by. Shaw wasn't able to attend high school until she was nearly 20 years old. Over the next several years, she began to perfect her oratory skills, and she aspired to the ministry. She traveled as an itinerant preacher for the Methodist Church until she was licensed as a local preacher by the Big Rapids District Conference of the Methodist Episcopal Church. As a licensed Methodist preacher, she was able to attend Albion College for free. Later, she decided to leave Albion in 1876 to attend Boston University Seminary, where she was the only woman on campus and faced what Franzen describes as a hostile tolerance. After seminary school, she became one of the first female ministers in Methodism when the Methodist Protestant Church ordained her at the age of 33 in 1880. After years of hardship and loneliness, she was finally the trusted spiritual leader of both men and women in two congregations. However, as we'll see, 
Shaw was kind of a workaholic. She decided to return to Boston University to earn her medical degree, not to practice medicine, but just to gain medical knowledge. Apparently, Shaw had an almost inexhaustible supply of energy because she continued pastoring, volunteered to aid fallen women in the Boston slums during her free time, all while earning her medical degree. The Reverend Dr. Anna Howard Shaw became the first woman to hold both the titles of Reverend and MD at the same time. Shaw understood that she was in a unique position. She wrote, quote, My theological and medical courses in Boston, with the experiences that accompanied them, had greatly widened my horizon, end quote. And so in 1885, she tendered her resignation at the two churches that she pastored for and set out to join the lecture circuit, where she believed that she could do more good for the world. Shaw had already been lecturing for suffrage around Boston as early as 1881, as a representative of the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Association, or the MWSA, a position she secured through her connections with the prominent suffragist Lucy Stone. Here she developed relationships with people like Frances Willard, William Lloyd Garrison, Julia Ward Howe, and many other luminaries of the time. By all accounts, Shaw was an amazing speaker. She rarely wrote out her speeches. She learned how to read her audience and to speak to them, not above them. In 1883, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU, adopted an equal suffrage plank as part of its Do Everything campaign, and Frances Willard recruited Shaw to be its spokeswoman. Then, in 1886, Shaw accepted a paid position with the MWSA, earning $100 a month for her lectures. Shaw's skills as an orator on behalf of suffrage temperance and the social purity movement led her to move outside the bounds of any one organization, and she increasingly lectured on a freelance basis. In 1887, she joined the Red Path Lyceum Bureau, which managed and promoted her speaking engagements. Soon she was making close to $500 a month. This was a good amount of money at the time, especially for a woman, but it's important to remember that Shaw was unmarried and came from poverty. She was acutely aware of how precarious her financial situation was, especially when compared to many other female reformers who were independently wealthy and did not rely on a salary to get by. The late 1880s were a whirlwind of activity for Shaw. She continued working for the MWSA and was also named as one of two national lecturers for the American Women's Suffrage Association, or the AWSA. She was also the associate superintendent and lecturer of the franchise department for the national WCTU. And this put her into contact with Susan B. Anthony, when they spoke on the same platform in Newton, Kansas, in October of 1887. Soon, Anthony began to carefully recruit Shaw to the National Women's Suffrage Association, NWSA. Shaw wrote, quote, I was very happy in my connection with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, but Miss Anthony's arguments were always irrefutable. You can't win two causes at once, she reminded me. You're merely scattering your energies. Begin at the beginning. Win suffrage for women, and the rest will follow. From then until her death, 18 years later, Miss Anthony and I worked shoulder to shoulder. 
By aligning with Anthony's NWSA, this placed Shaw at the center of the rivalry between the AWSA and the NWSA. And so here we'll give you a brief bit of backstory regarding these two organizations. And you can hear more about it in our episode 100 Years of Women's Suffrage, but here's the condensed version. After the Civil War, women's suffrage supporters organized the American Equal Rights Association, or AERA, in 1866, whose purpose was to secure equal rights to all American citizens, especially the right of suffrage, irrespective of race, color, or sex. So they're essentially looking for universal suffrage. But the debates over the 14th and the 15th Amendments caused a major split in the coalition of white feminists aligned with advocates of voting rights for black men. The feminist and abolitionist movements had been closely tied, almost one and the same, since the early 19th century. But the debates over these two amendments pitted votes for women against votes for black men. The 14th Amendment proposed to only protect the voting rights of male inhabitants. In fact, the amendment was the first time that male was inserted into the Constitution at all. Then, the 15th Amendment declared that states could not deny the right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The amendment did not mention sex. These were deliberate omissions and led to fierce debates between advocates for women's suffrage. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were privately approached by Wendell Phillips and Theodore Tilton to suspend work for universal suffrage and to concentrate on getting the vote for black men only. Apparently, Anthony responded that, quote, she would sooner cut off her right arm before she would ever work for or demand the ballot for the black man and not the woman, end quote. So essentially, she saw it as a betrayal to be asked to compromise on the issue of universal suffrage. And this caused a rift between Anthony and Frederick Douglass, and they divided over the issue. Douglass believed that it was a matter of life and death to grant emancipated black men the right to vote. Anthony's other statements cast this debate in a different light. Anthony stated, quote, It is not a question of precedence between women and black men. Neither has a claim to precedence upon an equal rights platform. But the business of this association is to demand for every man, black or white, and for every woman, black or white, that they shall be, this instant, enfranchised and admitted into the body politic with equal rights and privileges. However, Though many suffragists were part of the abolitionist movement to end slavery, they were not immune to racial prejudice. Elizabeth Cady Stanton claimed, quote, it's better to be the slave of an educated white man than of a degraded black one, and arguing that black men would be despotic if granted the vote instead of white women. Stanton and Anthony split with others in the women's rights movement over this issue and formed the NWSA, whose sole focus was the immediate voting rights for women. Other suffragists, led by Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe, formed the AWSA, which continued to support suffrage for black men with the understanding that the vote for women would come next. And so in 1889, when the NWSA hired Shaw, She was really a pin between the two organizations, 
uh, the NWSA and the AWSA, right? And she was one of the leaders who successfully negotiated a joining of these two organizations in the year 1890. And they joined into the National American Suffrage Association, or what we call NAWSA. It's N-A-W-S-A. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was elected NAWSA's first president from 1890 to 1892. Anthony became president in 1892 with Shaw as vice president and the NAWSA national lecturer. Shaw incessantly traveled the 48 states in Europe in the following years. Women like Shaw tirelessly campaigned across the country for suffrage, and by 1897, three more western states passed suffrage laws, bringing the total to four. In 1904, Susan B. Anthony convinced Shaw to accept the presidency of NAWSA, and according to Tricia Franzen, was the person who really brought the U.S. suffrage movement into the mainstream of political life. But her becoming president of NAWSA would require an economic revolution in its organization. Shaw came from a poor background, but the majority of national and international suffrage leaders were independently wealthy due to inheritance or marriage and were therefore able to volunteer their time. Shaw was neither wealthy nor married. She needed to earn her own living. And so for the first time, the association raised money to pay the president a salary, transforming the organization from a voluntary association to a truly modern organization where you had salaries for the officers. During Shaw's tenure, the NAWSA moved their national headquarters from Warren, Ohio, to New York City with salaried executive workers in a modern publicity department. Also, during her almost 12-year tenure as president, Shaw helped increase the number of full suffrage states from only four to 12. It was under her presidency that all of these other states gained suffrage for women. Washington in 1910, California in 1911, Arizona in 1912, uh, Kansas and or Oregon also in 1912, Illinois in 1913, Nevada in 1914, and Montana in 1914. Additionally, membership in NAWSA grew from 5,000 to 183,000 people while Shaw was president. But her progressive politics with regards to suffrage must be understood within a larger context. As Shaw traveled the country, she also espoused nativist or anti-immigrant ideas, and NAWSA was often seen as a hostile organization to African-American women and other minorities. From the Civil War era through ratification, the mainstream suffrage movement was split over the issue of race, and this continued up through the 1890s. In 1899, NAWSA held its annual meeting in Grand Rapids, Michigan. This was a key meeting because African-American women raised the issue that was very important to them, which was segregation on public transportation. Taking the train for African-American women was a very stressful situation because even if you could afford a first-class ticket, they often did not allow you to sit in first class, but instead forced you into the smoker car. At the 1899 convention, this issue was raised, but white leadership denied including it in the NAWSA platform because they didn't see it as a women's issue. In 1903, NAWSA held their national convention in New Orleans in order to gain support in the South. 
Unfortunately, they also caved to local demands, and the conference was officially segregated. We've talked about this in other episodes, so we won't go too in-depth here, but it's important to note that because of this consistent struggle by African-American women for their rights, they essentially had to found their own institutions. While suffrage organizations might allow some African-American women to be members, for the most part, they generally made it difficult for black women to be part of the suffrage mainstream. And this was also true for many other women's organizations like the WCTU. After the segregated convention in New Orleans, W.E.B. Du Bois, the NAACP, and their magazine, The Crisis, really pushed NAUSA on this issue of excluding African-American women. Not 10 years after the segregated convention in NOLA, NAUSA had their convention in Philadelphia, and by this time, things had changed enough that Du Bois was the keynote speaker. Du Bois' speech was called Disenfranchisement. And the key point was that you cannot have a true representative government unless you have everybody represented, because you cannot address everybody's issues unless everybody has a seat at the table. That's paraphrasing, of course, but it's an important thing to keep in mind, and NAUSA thought enough about the speech that they paid to publish it as a separate pamphlet. As America drew closer to involvement in the First World War and international developments dominated the news cycle, Anna Howard Shaw succeeded in keeping suffrage prominent in the nation's newspapers. Three years after her NASA retirement, President Woodrow Wilson drafted her to serve as the chair of the Women's Committee as part of the Council of National Defense. This happened within weeks after the U.S. entered the war in April of 1917. The following January, the U.S. House of Representatives finally passed the 19th Amendment, and nearly 71-year-old Shaw sat in the Speaker's box on that historic day. However, this did not guarantee that the Senate would follow suit and approve the amendment. In the meantime, Shaw got pneumonia in June of 1919, forcing her to return to Philadelphia to recuperate. She seemed to be recovering when the Senate passed the 19th Amendment in June, However, Shaw died on July 2nd, 1919, before the amendment was ratified by the states. In 1897, Shaw had said, The millennium may not come when women vote, but it will never come until they do. And so although Shaw did not see the final passage of the 19th Amendment, her tireless efforts helped allow it to happen. The 19th Amendment was ratified on August 18, 1920. At Shaw's bedside when she died was Lucy Elmina Anthony, Shaw's partner of 30 years and niece of Susan B. Anthony. Shaw and Lucy Anthony had a 30-year same-sex partnership. Now, of course, we would not call them lesbians or any other LGBTQIA plus identifying terms because they would not have identified themselves thusly in that time period. However, Shaw and Lucy Anthony's 30-year relationship was obviously a very devoted and loving relationship. It's important to bring these relationships in the suffrage movement to light to show how important women who would today probably define themselves as lesbians or gender nonconforming were to the suffrage movement. As we mentioned earlier, Shaw was fairly gender nonconforming during her early life. Not only did she do the work of men on the family farm, but she also kept her hair cut very short. Many of her classmates called her Annie Boy because of her boyish appearance. 
Historian Wendy Rouse argues that when Shaw began a career as a preacher and she realized that her appearance was causing a lot of comment, she began to cultivate a more feminine appearance in her public persona. She adopted a professional, plain look. The older she got, the more concerned she became with the appearance of the suffrage movement, saying, quote, No woman in public life can afford to make herself conspicuous by any manner of dress or appearance. So by saying this, she was essentially encouraging other suffragists to conform, to appear a certain way in order to gain respect in the press and of the audience they needed to win suffrage. Leaders like Shaw may have had very queer private lives, but not necessarily in public. This, of course, sacrificed some of the more radical goals of the women's rights movement and silenced the voices of queer individuals in the movement that historians are now trying to uncover. All right, so let's talk about historiography because, you know, we're historians and that's our favorite, right? So a a lot of the suffrage scholarship says that Shaw was not an effective administrator. And in my opinion, the discussion about historiography is where Franzen's book really shines. Uh, She argues that Shaw became Susan B. Anthony's protege and that Shaw was instrumental in uniting the NWSA and the AWSA. Franson also argues that the NAUSA was dying when Shaw took over its presidency. Shaw then reached out to younger women, to working women, to college-age women, and to men. And she really brought the suffrage movement up to the tipping point where the National Amendment was then able to happen. Now, of course, the amendment passed after she had retired from the presidency, but it was Shaw Uh, who was the one that really got the movement up to the point where a national amendment was possible. And here's what Franzen says about the historiography. And we're going to quote here a longer quote because it's really quite good. She says, quote, Most writers simply repeat the phrases concerning Shaw that originated with the early suffrage scholars and base their subsequent analyses on the early assessments. Rereading Eleanor Flexner's 1959, A Century of Struggle, after researching Shaw's life, it is easy to see that there is something amiss in how Flexner views Shaw. In less than a page, using only one manuscript collection and one convention proceeding as her sources, Flexner dismisses as insignificant the over 30 years of Shaw's rhetoric and leadership. Her decade as a NASA vice president and her 11 plus years in the NASA presidency. Flexner argues that Shaw was a difficult person and an inadequate leader, notes a few interactions with Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, and then announces her resignation. The tack that Flexner takes in that is that when noting problems within the movement, especially with the NASA, she attributes them all to Shaw's leadership, but when covering positive results, she never mentions Shaw. Subsequent historians picked up on this assessment. Eileen Crediter described Shaw in 1965 as possessing truly great oratorical skills, but that during her presidency, quote, Shaw's administrative deficiencies made the organization's problems worse. In 1959, historian William O'Neill took it a misogynistic step further by stating, quote, 
Anna Howard Shaw was short and fat, with a broad-seamed face and a disposition to match. No one else in the woman movement fitted so perfectly the stereotype promoted by anti-suffragists of the sharp-tongued, man-hating feminist. Men admired her least of all. Yeah. So one of the things that struck me when I was reading Shaw's autobiography that she wrote and published in 1915 is really kind of what a sense of humor Shaw had. Um, It's a bit sarcastic, or some people might describe it as a bit kind of Midwestern-y. Um, but I found her voice on the pre, in, on the page ex- extremely endearing. And so I want to give you an example. So this is from her autobiography, The Story of a Pioneer. It's on page 182. And Shaw is relating a story from her days on the lecture circuit. And she says, uh, quote, Mrs. Avery and I had just been entertained for several days at the home of a vegetarian friend who did not know how to cook vegetables. And we were both half starved. <laughs> Uh, She goes on uh, to say that her desire to eat was thwarted as she spent the entire dinner convincing Senator John J. Ingalls of the merits of women's suffrage. And Shaw wrote that, quote, The result was that I had time for only an occasional mouthful, while down at the end of the table, Mrs. Avery ate and ate, pausing only to send me glances of heartfelt sympathy. Also, when she had an especially toothsome morsel on the end of her fork, she wickedly succeeded in catching my eye and thus adding the last seberitic touch to her enjoyment. So, I mean, this is so funny, right? Like, she, like her friends down there basically like, hmm, ha ha, look at this. You're so starving. Right. But you see these kind of quips and quotes just throughout her her printed speeches and her uh you know, her, her, her autobiography. And so it's, it's a really nice way to kind of see, I think some of her personality shining through. She seems fun to me. Yeah, I, I agree. (laughs) We would have been friends. Accounts say how brilliant Shaw was as an orator, as a, as a speaker, but you know, just, just reading that or whatever, I don't think we really get a good idea of what that meant. Right. And so her autobiography gives us a little bit Uh, a little glimpse at that energy. Yes. So Franzen is really trying to challenge um, what she sees as kind of a bad rap for Shaw and to challenge a lot of this kind of repeated historiography and to challenge a lot of the misconceptions that she sees have developed around Shaw's life. And Franzen actually has a lot of room to do so. Until Franzen's book, there was no standalone biography of Shaw, which, if you think about, is kind of weird. Right. I mean, she was the, you know, she was part of the suffrage movement since the, you know, the 1880s. Like, she she took it all the way up to the cusp of the amendment, and Hmm. she's hardly mentioned or, you know, kind of mentioned as an aside and it's just it's it's strange that there's no you know standalone biography of her until 2014 it is yeah so we've given you an overview of shaw's life uh we've discussed some of the issues surrounding her legacy within the historiography but finally before we leave you today we just have to remind you our listeners that all women did not gain the right to vote with the passage of the 19th Amendment. Right. A lot of Native American women were not considered citizens in 1920. 
Zitkalasa, a citizen from the Yankton Sioux tribe, reminded rejoicing white women after the passage of the 19th Amendment that the fight was not over. It wasn't until 1924 that we had the Indian Citizenship Act that declared all non-citizen Indians born within the territorial United States would now be declared citizens and thus able to vote. Asian American women did not have U.S. citizenship when the 19th Amendment was passed. It was not until 1943, with the passage of the Magnuson Act, that Chinese-origin people were allowed naturalized citizenship. And it wasn't until 1952, with the McCarran-Walter Act, that Japanese and Korean Americans were allowed to naturalize. The racism and intimidation that prevented the majority of black men from voting particularly in the southern states, but in the north, too, was this, were the same barriers that prevented African-American women from voting after the passage of the 19th Amendment. It wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that all women had more voting protections. Of course, as we've seen in many red states and districts right now, there are still strong forces at work trying to curtail the African-American vote. So we, of course, need an honest and critical re-evaluation of the celebration of women gaining the right to vote. And it needs to happen within the larger framework of the political arena where we are still underrepresented as women. We are still up underrepresented as people of color, um, as people of different abilities, of different backgrounds and different sexualities. And so the struggle to pass the 19th Amendment was not the end of the story, but one point on a longer struggle that is still ongoing. And as a final thought, and perhaps this will come in use uh, the next time you're at a trivia night, Anna Howard Shaw was born on February 14th. So next Valentine's Day, feel free to celebrate or acknowledge Anna Howard Shaw Day instead of that day meant to oppress single people and sell candy. We should say thanks for listening. As always, you can find the transcripts, show notes for this episode um, at digpodcast.org. Feel free to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we have our Dig History Pod Squad, which is like a irreverent little group where we post memes and share our frustrations with those who misuse history. Um, and Twitter is where we'll share updates and stuff like that and sort of stay connected with the academic community as well as the public who love history on Twitter. Um, we have our swag store on at digpodcast.org where you can find funny t-shirts and, you know, spout or wear the dig logo with pride as you go about the world. Um, and finally, of course, we have on our website teacher resources. So if you're an educator and you want to incorporate some of our episodes into your classroom, we have tons of free lesson plans that will allow you to do just that with no work, um, as well as just ideas for how to use the episode. So check those out and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Pastoring. Pastoring. Pa- Sorry. Yeah. Her brothers and father. Oh, yeah, father. <laughs> Apparently, Anthony responded that she would, quote, she would, historian Rindy Rauch, Rindy, Mindy, 
Would you say that Roos or Ralph? Oh, I say Rouse, but I don't know. Rouse, okay. I would do. Was that a lot of money? Uh, I, uh, you're about to explain that. Oh, good. <laughs> Indeed, are you? All right, recording? Yeah, there it is. Okay. Hi. Hello. I'm put this over. Cannot see both my screens. All right, I'll put this over here so you can see that. All right, I think I'm ready. Cool. Are you ready? Ready. Say something. Ready. Say something. Ready, Freddy. Say something. Cheese whiz. One more time. Marigold. Okay. Thank you. As she spent the entire dinny. As she spent the entire dinny. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay, hold on. Can you can you take a screenshot? Because yes. I can't. But we should have this funny. Then <laughs> shift. Ready? Yep. Done. Because it's ridiculous. Did you stop recording? <laughs> Oh, shit. Oh, I did not. Where is it? Uh, oh, my God. I can't see what I'm doing with this tent. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.